evening we're going to be in 2 Samuel 23. And the last time in chapter 22, we saw a really great parallel with Psalm 18. And this evening we're going to look at what's known as the last words of David. Not necessarily on his deathbed, but towards the end of his life, as his life was sunsetting, he reflected. This was retrospective. This was, you know, introspective. All those fancy words for him just kind of looking back at his life, looking inside and what kind of legacy that he was going to leave behind. And the question is, what would be our last words? Well, now, as I go through this, this is something that as I start to talk about this, like I said, every person, this affects. Now, we're going to talk about David's life, but sometimes we have to almost look in the mirror spiritually and reflect on our own lives. Who are we? Right? What's our, our legacy going to be? What direction are we headed in? Is it the direction that God would have for us? So what would we want to remember? How would we want to be remembered? What defines us? What's our life's mission? And is it eternal? Think about the things we're involved in in life. Think about the things that are always on the forefront of our minds. Is it something eternal? Or is it something fleeting? Right? Another question is, as we look at the last few verses at David's life, who was with us in our journey? And, and true, as we go through these different life's goals and missions, we acquire different friends, different uh, associates that either help us through it, right? Think about the clubs you're involved. Think about, you know, who you are, what you want to be known as. So I just want to really kind of throw all that at you before we even take off. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, the man raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. These are interesting descriptions. And like you and I, right, there may, may be several things that define us. Maybe one word won't cut it. Okay, maybe there's several words that would cut it. But here we have David's one pedigree, the fact that he was elevated by God, anointed by God, and the type of relationship that he had with God. What would we want the top four or five descriptors on the top of our list for us to be known as? What would we want written on our epitaph? Who am I? What am I wasting my time with? Could I change direction? Could my focus be different? And, you know, even if you're not a Christian, people ask these questions anyway, right? You only get one life. You don't get to do it over. Reincarnation isn't true. Um, You get one shot at this. Make it count. Two, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue, the God of Israel said. The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God, and he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion, here's a contrast here, shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. So out of all the descriptors that David can speak about himself, he's really looking at the ones that 
he's espousing the ones that relate him to God. And certainly in, in addition to this is this leadership that David had ordained by God. In verse 2, God spoke to David and had David speak for him. What an awesome thing if you've experienced that. If you've been a Christian for a while, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, you'll, God will reveal things to you. And you know that when you pray, no matter where you are, God hears you. This is a relationship. This is what we preach at Calvary Chapel. This is what the sum of the scriptures teach. Not religion, but relationship. Every single person in this room, if you don't have a relationship with God, God desires one with you. Not too young, not too old, didn't sin too much. There's no reason that any of us can say, well, I I could be left out. Not true. All he desires to come to salvation, the Bible tells us. Verse 3, God raised David up to be a leader. And David presents what? Some God-given guidelines for leadership. God-given guidelines. Say that three times fast. But he says, a man who rules over men must be, number one, just, righteous. Right? Post-cross, righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. The second thing is, we need to rule in the fear of God. Why? Because I think we've seen, if we're old enough, especially if we've watched World War II movies, or even in the early 20th century, that the man who does not believe he's answerable to anyone will behave more like a dictator with no accountability. Even in this country, the framers were very careful that there was a separation and a balance of power because the framers knew the sinfulness of mankind. Right? This experiment called the United States. And we look out across the seas and we see a lot of dictators. We think about Stalin, Hitler, Mao. They all have two things in common. Number one, they either didn't fear God or believe in God. The second thing was they were responsible, one man, for killing of millions of people. These are common and constant in this type of person. Once you sear your conscience, once you sear your conscience, people become subhuman and pawns in a chess game of power. How does, how does one person, you've got to think about this, be in the mind of a dictator. How does one person allow themselves to be responsible for the killing of millions? A million people. That is unbelievable. Those are staggering numbers. In verse 4, the third point. So this is amazing. <laughs> we look at something thousands of years ago, and if we would have heeded that in the 20th century, there would have been a lot less carnage in the world. The Bible's wisdom is timeless. Timeless. Rules for leadership. So verse 4, the third point we see is that leaders should be those that we want to look up to. That we want you know, to desire to follow that leader and rally behind that leader. It's kind of a cute description, that, and, and, he, and he makes a, a harsh description of bad leaders, but this description of, he'll she be like the light of the morning when the sun rises. You know, if you're a nature person and you're just kind of watching the sun come up and the, and the dew is on the lawn and it just starts to evaporate and, you know, the clouds move away and the tender grass, you know, and the flowers bend towards the sun, it's a beautiful picture. That's what leadership should look like to everybody else following that person. And we're going to talk about bad leaders, too. We'll get to that. We know that David was a lamp to Israel. And as Christians, we're supposed to reflect the light of Christ. So our rulership is pleasant, not something to dread. And we can make this application. I I don't know any monarchs in this room. I don't know any kings and queens. Um, I'm not. 
but we all have some type of authority maybe in our lives. Maybe we're an owner of a business. Maybe we're a council person. Maybe we're somebody in an authoritative position. And, and this definitely should apply to us. It does apply to us as well. Because absolute power is a runaway train to those that are not submitted to God. Bar none. Can't find me one person in history that had absolute power and didn't get corrupted by it. Verse 5, the fourth point. David reflected on his life, leadership, and his household. And what did he state? That although my house is not so with God, David knew there was a flaw in his own household. There were problems. There was treachery. There was... You know, David tried the best he could to be a a man after God's own heart, but there were problems in the Davidic dynasty. And he knew that. He recognized that. That's important, too. I don't even have that in my notes. But what's important for us is to recognize our own flaws. Every single person in here can look in the mirror and say, I know what what your flaw is. And we're deceiving ourselves. We're fooling ourselves if we don't pick these out and, and try to deal with them. Keep them at bay. Be careful of the flesh. But David also knew that it was God who enriched him. He made a covenant with David in spite of David. And that's the beauty. Of course, there's messianic overtones in this as well. But God is a gracious God. And if we try to have a heart after God, and we, this is the direction that we go in, God will, also, will often make us successful in spite of ourselves. I love the fact that God uses Joe in spite of Joe and Joe's faults and flaws and putting his foot in his mouth and doing things he shouldn't do. But God uses me in spite of me, and that's the beauty. We we understand what our flaws are, but we also understand God is a gracious and loving God. And he will make us successful in spite of our failures and flaws. You know, I love David because here's a guy who had so much power but if you look at his, his life, he was a humble person because no matter how much power he had, he tried to continue to submit himself to God and he tried not to let it get the best of him. So you can't imagine, you know, we have a president, we have senators and congressmen. Imagine if one man or one woman had ultimate power in this country. It would be a scary thing, wouldn't it? Especially since a lot of people on the federal level don't seem to be submitted to God. You know, head for the hills, you know, worry about that. But David had absolute power, and he didn't let it, I don't think he let it, he let it corrupt him. I think other things he allowed to corrupt him at times, and then he was also quick to repent and get back into God's good graces. Verses 6 and 7, which brings us to the fifth point, here David contrasts a good leader with a wicked leader. Now David uses metaphors with the wicked as well as with the good, and we'll look at this. Um, he speaks about them like thorns. You know, how many of us have, I know I have either, you know, walked into a thorn bush or fallen on it or getting scratched up by it, right? (laughs) It's not fun. And a wicked leader is almost like sitting in a thorn bush. You know, you're going to get poked from every direction. However, bad leaders are dealt with harshly, have to be dealt harshly with by God. He says he has to use an iron implement. He has to use a harsh implement. And they eventually, the thorns get disposed in the fire. They have no other use than to be burned. So when we use that, and we, you know, when David uses that, and we think about that type of person, you know, there are just some people that are just so stubborn. They're so willful, so prideful, so wicked, that God only can only deal with them in one way. 
because they're not going to repent. They're not going to feel bad. They're not going to have any um, remorse or conviction. That's in the place that none of us want to be in. Now, we, if, remember when we went through Mark 6, we looked at Herod Antipas, who God dealt with him in this life. History tells us that. There's biblical history and secular history. They both say the same thing. Secular history tells us what happened to Herod Antipas. And there's some that God deals with in the afterlife, in the, in the lake of fire, in judgment. So eventually they will be dealt with. Sometimes we see things in the world and we get stumbled. It bothers us. But God will hold them accountable. You can't starve your people in a country and think that you're not going to be judged by God. It's just not going to happen. Now, we have to also look at this because, again, we're not monarchs. I don't know any monarchs in this room. We have to look at this in our peer groups, too, in our social groups, in our um, professional groups, because there are those that are informal leaders. They're alphas, so to speak, an alpha male, an alpha female. And if they're not submitted to God, a lot of them will, well, they, they will, because there's no, nothing above them. They think that they're the ultimate, and they, they get a following, and to some it, it, it kind of brings them a high. So alphas in the group will cause more trouble, will tear down, will break down, you know, will do mean things. And you see it sometimes even with teenagers, and you say, how could they do something like that? It's this, this alpha who gets this power from others following them. And if they're not submitted to God, look out. It's trouble. A few important words on leadership, again, is David valued both the privilege and the responsibility of godly leadership as we look through his life. We've seen a lot in that in First and Second Samuel. I also think a lot of David's humility, going back to the humility aspect, came from a few things. David was tested. I always get concerned when, when it's, again, either a president, a, a senator, a congressman, even a Supreme Court or a federal justice, a person who's never been tested in life, maybe handed you know, this power, maybe grew up in an, an elite community where they were groomed for a certain position. That's scary. Scary. You see, David was tested as a shepherd. He had to give his life, in a sense, to protect those sheep. Remember, he fought the lion, he fought the bear, he did whatever he could to protect those sheep, even as a shepherd boy that he was entrusted with. Two, David proved himself in King Saul's army, hooked up with Jonathan, who was another great man, great pioneer of faith. So two, he proved himself. And three, he proved himself in the army, then he also proved himself as a fugitive in that, from that same army when the king was jealous and enraged by David and went after him and hunted him down like an animal. So that same army of, that were his comrades now were, were out to kill him. Isn't that sad? Imagine how he felt rejected, abused. But this, this tested him. And, and you see a lot of good examples of leadership here, right? This testing. Today in our society, we either have masters or celebrities as leaders, we have a country that's becoming leaderless because of this concept. We don't have true leaders grown up and raised the way the Bible speaks about. Even some pastors, like I said in the East Coast Pastors Conference this year, there was a teaching where, where the, uh, the pastor said to all the pastors, you know, probably over a thousand listening, that if you think you're a celebrity, he said, you need to repent. He rebuked them because you need to go back to being a shepherd. Pastor or ministry leader should never become a celebrity. 
God calls us to be under shepherds. Right? So again, handling that power and authority properly, the way God would want us to handle it. Verses 8 through 12. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino, the Esnite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, is a name, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. After him was Shammah, the son of Egi, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. Then the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. For those who are stumbled by warfare, especially in the Old Testament, understand this. What's happening in Iraq and Syria is brutal. There's a group of Sunni militants, ISIS, who are coming down the south and just destroying city after city, killing people, burning villages, cutting people's heads off, literally, and basically giving them dictums. Um, this, is, this is how you will, you know, under Sharia law, otherwise we'll kill you. Either convert, either follow Sharia law, you're dead. And I think that when we see stuff like that, I find this settling because evil has to be confronted in this world. You know, you can't make peace with evil. You can't pacify these people. Eventually, they will take over the world if you allow them. So, you know, these people were just as bad. No Geneva, you know, convention. They say, if you give up, you know, we'll spare you. And then they kill them and they they torture them. That's going on in Iraq right now. It's pretty bad stuff. So, you know, again, some are uneasy with this, but... Uh, you have to understand that God is not the God of chaos, of anarchy, and he can't allow anarchists to rule. Now, if a person of integrity is going to mention, will mention the fact of those who are with he or she in their leadership, in their authority. Right? In other words, anybody in leadership, if, if the organization is big enough, has to give credit to those that lift their arms, that support them. And this is what David does. You got it. This is impressive. David didn't say, hey, look at me. You know, I'm, I'm the anointed. I got the heart after God. David said, let me tell you, let me chronicle all these, these guys that were with me that supported me and helped me fight these battles. You know, he didn't say he did it himself. And you can find parallels in 1 Chronicles 11. I have to say one more thing before we go into it is that there were, there were names, and we go into Chronicles, the names are a little bit different. Now, this happened in the Old Testament. It also happened in the New Testament. Remember, even Jesus' disciples, Matthew, Levi, Peter, Cephas, you know, Thaddeus, Lebius, they had different names. Some of them were, uh, according to Simon the Zealot, right? according to the group that they were in. Um, sometimes they were surnames and names. So don't get confused by that. Let's just understand the, what the Scripture is trying to convey to us. The first person is Josheb Bashabeth, killed 800 at one time, which really rivals Samson's taking out 1,000 with the jawbone of a donkey. It's close. 
Now, this could have been a one-time thing that was supernatural, as in the case with Samson, or it could have been that you know, he was a fearless leader and he rallied up his brave soldiers to fight these, this group, and he was credited with the victory of 800. So that's one person. Then we have Eleazar. The men of Israel, the Bible tells us, were afraid. But Eleazar came out swinging. He fought so hard and for so long that his hand stuck to the sword. Now, it doesn't come out very clear in the Hebrew, but there was some type of injury that he sustained uh, in battle. You know, I mean, you could just imagine today people do CrossFit and different things to, to, get, to stay in really good physical shape. Boy, back in the day, they trained and trained for hours because sometimes there were certain battles that they fought from sun up to almost sundown. Imagine the cardiovascular shape that these soldiers were in. So he's injured. Don't be surprised when you're fighting in the Lord's battles that you get spiritually wounded. Don't be surprised if you raise your hand and say, I want to be a part of ministry, that you become wounded, that you become hurt, that you're injured in some way. It happens. Even on a physical level, I remember um, any time I, uh, the instructors and I taught the girls self-defense class, we said that we're going to teach you things to be able to get away and escape. You may be bleeding. You may have broken bones. You may be you know, banged up pretty good, dehydrated, scraped up, scratched up, but you'll be alive. Right? And, and that was our biggest concern, that you get out of there alive in that situation. And I tell you sometimes that we, I look, and I'm going back and forth between the physical and the spiritual. Most likely none of us will end up in these type of battles. But what is the application? There's spiritual battles. The Bible tells us we don't fight against flesh and blood. Even when somebody is coming against us and they, they're trying to take us out, there's something demonic that's driving them. God wants that person to be saved. And we might just see them as a nuisance or an aggravation. Right? And you, and you fight these battles. There's principalities. There's demonic powers. There's suggestive powers of the underworld to people who are susceptible to these things. Some of them even call themselves Christians, and they're really not. They're, they're tares. They're emissaries of Satan. God, or Satan sometimes seeds them in the church. We, we looked at this with the, the uh, parable of the wheat and the tares, right? If you're fighting the Lord's battle, don't be surprised when others come against you. So what happens here is that the Lord brings a great victory and the people came to plunder, right? They came to help take, uh, you know, first they were cowering in a corner <laughs> and then they were, you know, they, they rallied around a leader who, who inspired them. And then they were victorious, and then they came around to take the spoils, right? Shema, another guy here. Again, a bunch of scared Israelites, God's people again, cowering in a corner, but not Shema. And I got to tell you this, when God's people are cowering in a corner, that's shameful. Whether it's in the Old Testament to fight an actual battle or a war, when God says, I've given you the victory, you just need to get up and go into it. Trust me, I'm going to deliver you. And, and the Israelites, they're scared. Oh, they have chariots. They have implements that we don't have. They have weapons. That we're outnumbered. God's like, <laughs> but I've given you the victory. How many times have we seen that in the scripture? I tell you what, in the New Testament, or even in the church age, it's even worse. Because often God doesn't call us out to physical war and do bloody battle, but he calls us to, to be righteous. He calls us to win people to Christ. He calls us to not be in the flesh, but to be in the spirit. 
and to, to oppose at times those that are, that are uh, dishonoring God's name and calling themselves a Christian. And I see many believers, they, they're doing the same thing. They're cowering in the corner, and that's shameful because God has given us the victory. God has given us the victory. So this is what Shammah does. He gets in the middle, refuses to give ground, and, and brings a victory to God's people. Now, the Philistines, you know, we wonder this about the, you know, the barley harvest and, and, or the lentils. And I tell you what, I love lentils. <laughs> and, I, you know, it, it's not about the lentils. <laughs> it's not about that. It was about, and my wife makes a mean lentil stew, I have to tell you. But what it's about is that the Philistines would often come and invade Right? They would harass God's people, especially during harvest time, and steal their food. And there are Christians who also live in fear. And God will not respond to fear because it's an insult on his character. Think about that. God will not respond to fear. He responds to faith. Right? Because it's an insult to think that our God is so powerless and weak. God, if you, if you, you know, it's not what he responds to. But like these guys, I tell you, this is exciting. I, I, I haven't seen a movie made out of this, but I'd just be curious to see how somebody, artist, an artist's rendition, you know, I, I like that. Just come out swinging, not staying, you know, helpless in the corner, right? Verse 13. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. Now, here's a battle that, you know, some have argued or discussed when it might have occurred. I don't think that's really important. I think what's important is what happened in the battle. So what happens is that, you know, supplies, water supplies are running low and David is, is parched. Man, if you're out there in that hot weather and you're running low on water, it's torturous, really is. But a group of David's men, David must have been saying this kind of out loud or thinking out loud, and his, his mighty men heard him, and three of them say, let's go get David some water. So maybe there was a stalemate in the battle, and three guys go out. They break through the Philistine lines. They get this water and bring it back to David. But David refuses to drink it. Now, some might say, well, that's, you know... He, unappreciative. No, you, you're missing the point if that's what you think. He looked into the cup of water and saw the fact that these men who were loyal to him could have died getting that water. So he poured it out. Right? Loyalty is important. And you don't see a whole lot of loyalty in the world. I tell you what, in politics, you don't see any loyalty. Somebody's your friend until the other person offers them something better. But loyalty is also important in the body of Christ, and it's despicable when it's not in the body of Christ, right? Ultimately, we need to be loyal to the Lord. But here's the interesting thing. David's three mighty men were loyal to David, but David was also loyal to them. He refused to drink that water. Now, some see in this a drink offering, which started in the law, 
and was also likened to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And the Apostle Paul also latched onto the concept of a drink offering. You know, this was a sacrifice. Now, if David was right next to a well where the water was cold, him pouring it out wouldn't have meant much. But the fact that he couldn't get water, and this was all he had, right? And he dumped it out. He poured it out. And brothers and sisters, when we offer something to the Lord that costs us nothing, it doesn't mean much. When we offer something to the Lord that means a lot to us, it it changes things. Even in the Old Testament, when they would give up their animals, uh, God said, I don't want your lame and your, you know, your deformed animals. I want the best of what you have because it was a reflection on the person's heart. So this meant a lot, David pouring out that water onto the ground. In verse 18, it says, Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Abishai wins the victory against 300 men. Joab, now this is important. For those of you that know the Bible and have been following you know, the, the uh, historical works, Joab did a lot. He's only mentioned as a familial reference, and I'm going to come back to that. Verse 20. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three, and David appointed him over his guard. So here we have Benaiah. If we know a little bit about Benaiah, he actually was a priest who became a soldier. He became part of David's elite bodyguard. We can look at him and make the application to the secret service of today or the special forces. So a priest becomes special forces. I guess police officer and pastor doesn't sound that unusual anymore. Just saying. Okay? <laughs> some, of Benaiah's, or some of Benaiah's achievements are... You know, these two Moabites that were pretty impressive people that he ended up killing probably at one time. He was also in a pit with a lion on a snowy day, and you wonder, how did he get in a pit with a lion on a snowy day? I don't think it was an ultimate fighting contest. Probably the lion fell into the pit, and then um, he ended up falling into the same pit because the snow deceived him, and he stuck there with a lion who was probably hungry and had no choice but to fight the lion. Right? You wonder how these things happen, but... That's just my imagination. It's probably close to correct. Um, The other thing is he goes up against an armed Egyptian who must have been built like a warrior. There was something impressive about him. And he's got an important, you know, he's got a spear and Benaiah only has a staff. And through hand-to-hand combat, he wrests the the, uh, spear away from the Egyptian and kills him with his own weapon. I like these stories. I I think they're pretty neat. I'm looking at Western culture, and I'm even looking at sometimes things in Christian culture. And, you know, God made men to be men. He made us, I talked about this on Father's Day, he made us to be servant leaders. And we, we do the best and we fulfill our goals when we, you know, God, uh, man was made in God's image, right? And through the fall, we lost that. We were effaced, but 
that's the, the goal that we should be looking at. When we look at Jesus, he was, he was not a, a wimpy character. He's not, he was the son of God. And I talked to you Sunday about how he took charge immediately. He, you know, the crowd wants to make him a king. He dismisses the crowd, sends him away, takes the disciples, send him in the boat, and he goes up the mountain to pray, and then he ends up back with the disciples. Very take charge. He, he read the situation. He read the battlefield, the spiritual battlefield, and knew what he had to do to, to, to do that. Okay, I'm just going to say this. I, I look at a lot of war stuff, and um, you know, I, I think it's fascinating, right? And like I said, we, we fight spiritual battles. But I'm not going to go into it. I don't want to get too carried away here. We're off the topic. But verse 24, the last few verses. It says, Asahel, the brother of Joab, again, Joab is mentioned familiar, was one of the 30, Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shema, the Herodite, Elikah, the Herodite, Helez, the Peltite, Ira, the son of Ikesh, the Tekoite, Abiezer, the Anath, Anathathite, Mabune, the Hushahite, Hushathite, excuse me, Zalman, the Ahohite, Mehare, this is a good one, the Netophathite, Haleb, you, are you enjoying watching me struggle? There's only a few, few left. <laughs> Skip that part. Haleb, the son of Bana, the Netophathite, Ittai, the son of Ribai, from Gibeah, of the children of Benjamin, Benaiah, a Parathonite, Hidai from the brooks of Gash, Abi Alban, the Arbathite, Asmaveth, the Barhumite, Eliaba, the Shalbanite of the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, Shammah, the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliphalet, the son of. That's what I named my dog, by the way. I, I really did, Eli for short. The son of. Ahazbi, the son of the Machathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezre, the Carmelite, Pare, the Arbite, Egal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Neherai, the Berethite, I'm getting better at this, Armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerib, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. Thank you. <laughs> Okay. The one who stands out the most in my mind is Uriah the Hittite. This guy was a loyal guy. He was one of David's most valiant men, and he would not dishonor the king. Uriah, even when David gave him leave to come home, he would not even have marital relationships with his wife while his men were in battle. David sends him back into battle purposely to kill him. He goes to battle. He goes up against the wall, which is a place you never want to be. That's the kill zone. The other men draw back. I'm sure Uriah realized he was by himself and he still fought and fought and fought until he was killed in battle. The fix was in the whole time. Here's a guy who, sadly, we know him through a horrible death that he faced with no backup. He still fought for Israel. He still fought for God. And this is how he died. He's an honorable man. So he stands out the most in my mind. Now, on the other end, the person who stands out the most, who wasn't mentioned, is one of David's most effective generals that served David for years, Joab. 
Joab was probably not mentioned because his heart was not right when he served. He was a can-do type of person. However, most of his serving was self-serving and should have been probably removed a long time ago. And you know what? We don't fight these wars anymore. As believers, we fight spiritual battles. And there are people who are false leaders who worm their way into ministries. The only thing that they want to do is aggrandize themselves. They want to lift themselves up. And they'll find a ministry that they think is weak so they can worm their way in there. And they end up causing church splits, divisions, factions, gossip. It's a sad thing. In the end, Joab's true colors were revealed. One of David's, one of the last rebellions against David was by another, another one of his sons, Adonijah, who Joab tried to raise him up onto the throne. And Joab was finally killed because of his disloyalty. Now, when I advertised this message on Facebook, I talked a little bit about this on our Facebook uh, church wall. And I said that Joab, think about this, Joab was a Judas before Judas ever became a Judas. Let's, let's try that one again. Joab was a Judas before Judas ever became a Judas. And Joab's last act was to play Judas, and he, he paid the price for it. Not listed among the mighty men, not listed among the men who fought for Israel who fought for God, because Joab fought for himself. So let's go back to the title, Leaving a Legacy. What can we say about David? He wasn't perfect. He was definitely a sinner, many times over. However, he did have a heart for God, and he really tried to honor God. And in these last verses, David also gave others credit that helped him. Think about that. David looked back over his life, and he said, Who was with me when I was trying to serve the Lord? I've got to tell you something, in a spiritual sense, when I look at this church, what a blessing God has given us, there are some awesome men and women who serve with me, who I thank you for all your service, because this can't be the Joe show. I would have quit a long time ago. And I'm so thankful that God has put awesome men and women on this staff to help, to fight the Lord's battles, because sometimes I'm tired and I need to be refreshed. Sometimes the other pastors and their wives are tired. And you know what? We move resources around. We redeploy the troops so that we can continue doing what we do here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields. I'm really into this battle stuff. You know, Alexander the Great, one of his, it's, it's a shame. I don't think he died a believer. I think he conquered the known, known world at like the age of 32 or 33. He could go into any situation in the battlefield and he could read the battlefield. And when he fought in the Battle of the Hydaspes in, in India, fought against King Porus, and King Porus had these battle elephants, and the troops were afraid of the elephants. But Alexander the Great routed them and got them into a position where, you know, just reading the battlefield, where they got stuck in the mud, literally, and the men could take advantage of that, and, they, and the Greeks won the battle. Here's a man with so much talent. Imagine what he could have done for the Lord. But I think he died as a pagan. What does it all mean? What's his legacy? Where has he been for the last few thousand years? Let's go back to David. (laughs) David tried to honor God. He had a heart for God. In the last few verses, again, David gave credit for those that helped him. He had trials that tested him and molded his character, and he had good people that he could count on. What will be our legacy? This is an old story, thousands of years old. But what does it mean to us in New Jersey in 2014? 
Well, people die every day and they're known for something. What are people known for? Being cruel and heartless? Being the town gossip? Um, Some people are known for that when they die. He was a Christian. She was a Christian. Right? What do we want to be known for? Again, putting David aside, what do we want our legacy to be? What about for all eternity? Do we want to be known as a Joab, a Judas, or a David, a Shammai, a Benaiah? You want to know a recipe for leadership that you can count on? Number one, to have a relationship with God. Number two, when God tries to battle harden us, that we don't try to resist it, that we see what it's trying to do in our life, how he's trying to shape and mold our character. Three, that we surround ourselves with good and godly people, edifying people with the same heart for God that we have. Let's pray.